Welcome to the Sunday evening service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained. Christians are encouraged and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us and may your hearts be blessed as God's word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. Your Bibles tonight, we'll go to James chapter 1, the very end of the chapter. James asks us a question. If any of you seem to be religious, I won't ask you to raise your hand if you seem to be religious. You all look very sanctimonious out there. <laughs> You've got some of you dressed up all in uh, your tie and your suit. You look great. You've got your Sunday garb on. You seem to be very religious. There was an evangelist I listened to a while back, and he said, I don't ask people uh, if they're religious. He says, I don't even ask them if they're saved. He says, Often they'll tell me about a time back yonder that they filled out a card and, and, and they say they're, they're counting on that to get them to heaven. He says, what I ask them now is, is there any signs of life in you, spiritual life? How do you take your spiritual temperature? James is asking us that. I don't care if you seem to be religious. He says, I want to know, are you truly uh, working out, your, your expressing your religion in, in real ways. That's the test, isn't it? Father, we pray that as we open this book tonight, your book, thank you for James, your half-brother, the pastor there at the Church of Jerusalem who prayed so often that his knees were calloused over, got the nickname of Camel Knees. Lord, what a conviction that is to all of us. I pray that we would be uh, Christians that are truly living out, faith that works. We thank you for our text tonight, and I pray that you would drive home truths that would make us better Christians this week and beyond. And thank you for our church. And I pray that as we lift it up tonight, that we would be the light that we ought to be, the salt that we ought to be, uh, that we would show forth our faith by our works. Thank you so much for the time. In Jesus' name, amen. You remember the theme of, of, of James, of course, is, is faith, but it's faith that that works. Uh, chapter 1, verse 22, by way of uh, reminder, as we establish again where we're going, be, here's a theme, isn't a key to the book, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. The doers edition, the doers version of the Bible is what people really want to see. If you don't, you're just really deceiving your own selves. And that's a very big danger because when we, uh, we get to the end of our lives and appear before the great judge of the King of Kings, uh, he will see right through our facade, won't he? So you are to be not just a hearer, but a, a doer of the word, not deceiving yourselves. There are many who take a glance at God. James tells us kind of towards the end of chapter 1, uh, for if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man that just takes a look. Now and then, uh, he just takes a, a look at, at a mirror, sees himself, and perhaps a adjust things a little bit, and off he's, off he's on his way. He's looking at himself at a glass, but he forgets the truth about his own heart. And uh, he's, not really, he's really not a worker, a doer of, uh, of the principles of the Word. We had a, a mission team that we were a part of when I was in high school that spent a, summer, a couple summers in Brazil, and they had their, their motto that said, get your hands dirty, get dirty for God. In other words, have calloused dirty hands in the ministry. Be a worker. I thought that was an interesting slogan or phrase. I, I recall, in fact, I've shared this a couple of times. My, my interval between churches was about six and a half years. I preached at a, a church for a while, and then 
we took a break and prayed about the next step, and it got a little bit longer, so I enjoyed some time in the trades, and I was a, a drywall finisher. I can remember the first day on the job. I Here I had my shiny uh, hard hat. I remember it was a white hard hat, not a single scratch or ding on it. And I had a brand new Stanley thermos, not a scratch or a ding on it. I mean, I was proud. And a brand new bucket full of brand new tools that were just shiny. And, I, and of course, I also had the garb that you're supposed to have in, in the trades. I had a pair of painter whites on. And again, there wasn't a there wasn't a speck of paint on them, and I arrived on the, on the, you know, I was glowing when I came in, and I, the job site, and everybody looked at me and said, uh-huh, there's a first-year apprentice if we've ever seen one, and, uh, and I remember as we, as I was learning about how to mix mud as a drywall finisher, there's, there's a science to that, and that's the first thing you do. No, it's not. The first thing they do, forgive me for this, is they run to the gang box, and they throw it open and pull out what they used to call a boom box. Remember what that is? Some of you do. And they cranked the tunes, and it wasn't hymns, ancient and modern. <laughs> it was either hard rock music or some kind of country station. Don't say amen. Some kind of country station. And, uh, and then that would be the, the adrenaline that carried them through the day. And then we would go, and the first thing we would do is we'd mix uh, buckets, of five-gallon buckets of mud for uh, just a coating, of course, the tape. And there's there's, there's a different mixture for when you're taping or bedding or skimming. And so all these have different... And so what we do is we put just a little splash of water in the mud to kind of loosen it up. <laughs> and I was here with a guy I'd never met before, and he looked at me. He had heard that I was a preacher <laughs> in the trays. And so we're, he's got that paddle going. He was mixing up mud and pouring a little water in there. And he looked at me and said, Preacher, out here in the real world, you're never going to make it unless... You get your hands dirty. And he took my hands and dunked them in the mud bucket. He says, now we're ready to go to work. It's amazing how many Christians don't have any calluses, don't have any spirit. They got spiritual gifts, but they're unused. They're like me walking on the job site. And we're pretty impressive to look at, but we haven't uh, used the gift that God has given us. And so here we see uh, James is going to outline for us some important things. If any man, verse 26, seem to be religious, and he, he brings us a, an important test. Here it is. If you seem to have the appearance of religion, uh, you are to not be more, uh, you're not to be a sermon sipper or a, a church jumper going from here to there and, and, and a, a, really a religion that's skin deep. But if you're, if you're really religious, truly religious, here's a test for you. You are to be one who what does the Bible say? You are to bridle your tongue. The word is to rein in your tongue, to keep your tongue from evil, the book of Proverbs says. But if you, if you can't do that, you deceive your own heart, and this man's religion is vain or worthless. It's empty. James has a concern that their faith, the faith that they had there in the early church scattered abroad, the faith of the living saints of God as they were moving forth, uh, redeemed by the gospel, would be different than the religious crowd that they came out of. The religious crowd in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, my, did they like to look religious, right? They did. They had it all. In fact, if you visit Israel today, you'll see the religious. They're still there. They got the curly sideburns, and they got the phylacteries on, the long robes, and man, you walk by them, and you can almost hear harp music. 
But if you seem religious and are not doing the work, if you're not bridling your tongue, why is that so hard to do? That's the first really sign of true religion, a bridled tongue. What does that mean? James will return to this theme in chapter 3 where he says, What a fire a little spark kindleth. The tongue is like that. But he's saying here, it, 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 listen, men, ladies, young people, if, if, you, if you seem to be religious, but you bridle not your tongue, your religion is empty. So how are you doing with this test? I'm not talking about in the church foyer. I'm talking about out Monday through Saturday where your friends hear you, your family sees you when you hit your thumbnail with that hammer, what comes out? You see, there is a connection, isn't there, between the heart and the tongue. And there's often a slip between the cup and the lip. And there's often a, 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 just what they call a faux pas, often on the job site. As I mentioned earlier, they, they knew I was around. They said, preacher, after a curse in a blue streak, excuse my French. And they said, oh, preacher, I'm sorry, you didn't hear that, did you? Well, there, there's a truth that when it, 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 we are speaking things in a harsh way, unkind way, and vile things and curse, curse words, the, the, James is saying, listen, you better check to see that if you're the real deal or not, because your speech is a true indicator of your theology in your heart. It betrays you. And he's just being practical. Isn't if any man among you seem to be religious and does not bridle his tongue. Your talk is a window of your heart. It's an indicator of a faith that is, in the Greek, useless, vain, or worthless. Just hang around somebody long enough, and uh, they, will, they will know. We were with the two or three men from this church on a fishing boat not too long ago, and the captain, I always tell them before I get there, there's a preacher on board. <laughs> it saves me a lot of struggles. And so he knew when I stepped on, I said, oh, you're the preacher? I said, yes, sir. He says, I'll do my best to guard my tongue today. And he did. But there was another boat that floated by. He waved at us. He said, I heard there's a preacher on board. How does that get out? I don't know. He says, you better watch that guy over there. Pray for him. I said, I will. And he said, pray for me too. And on he goes. You know. But it's amazing how spiritual, how Sunday school-like people are when they're around preachers. And then how quickly that tune can change. The second thing he says, pure religion, verse 27, and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. This is really your record. Another sign of true life is your record of compassion and character. Again, if it may seem religious, your, your religion is vain. And then, pure religion, this is holy, clean, undefiled before God, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. The ministry, uh, very important in those days and in our days, was evidenced on how well the folks in that first century church took care of widows, no orphanages, right, and orphans. Why do you reckon 
How, how come it is that th- there was such a growing number, do you think, of widows and orphans? Why? Now remember that the context is they're being scattered abroad. Why? They're being chased at the point of a spear. They're being tortured and tormented. And many of the men folk were losing their lives, which then uh, drove this growing number of what we call foster kids or orphans. And the charge to the church was, men, leaders, families, you be the orphanage. You be the care for these who are in, in what, what we call almost, uh, in, are almost vulnerable because there's no daddy or perhaps in some cases mom and dad both uh, tortured and put to death and leaving the children not to roam the streets. He says, as a church, it's your responsibility. Take them in. I was at the state house and listening to a man. Uh, his last name was Nagel. And he said, uh, we have at least 11,000 little foster kids looking for homes in this state. There's over 100,000, I think, uh, throughout the states. But he says, here in Georgia, it is at critical need level. And he said, did you know if the church, just one out of three churches, uh, would step up and take a foster kid, we could change the lives of these youngsters. And I thought to myself, I've never thought of that. We know of adoption. We know of, and some folks maybe here in this church have uh, maybe done the foster care thing. There's not just a, uh, the need for that. There's, I think the, the government, Georgia, has a little kickback for taking care of these financially. But have you ever thought about being a foster parent? It's right here. It's practical religion. And you think, well, maybe I'm just too old for that. I don't have the energy for that. But there's a crying need for those even within our church. And, and not just outside of our church, perhaps in the foster care system the state system, but you think about our church and maybe some that are the children of single parents and, and maybe some that just need extra mentorship. Folks, let's, let's sit up and pay attention. These are our children. And they need our help. And uh, you're involved in this and you say, well, I'm going to skip that verse. <laughs> no, we can't do that. If it's pure religion, if it's true religion, undefiled, it's to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. You know, you don't have to be called on to go visit a shut-in. Did you know that? You don't have to wait for me to give you a little phone call, say, go visit so-and-so. We have about close to 15, 16, that, and the list changes a little bit. But these are folks that just would love you to pieces for coming by and just sitting with them. And, and, and you know, just praying with them. They love it. And you would be their hero. And folks, we, we just go, go see Robin if you need a list and visit these folks. That's what's called true or pure religion. A third indicator of true religion is found in chapter 2. And the section really goes from chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. Let's read the verses and pick out at least one more principle, shall we? Beginning uh, our reading in chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. We are been told to watch our tongue and to be compassionate uh, to the vulnerable. I didn't mention this, but often the vulnerable then became targets of sexual abuse in that day and ours as well. He says to keep yourself unspotted for that kind of thinking, uh, for taking advantage of these little ones and, or of course, the, the widows there. He says, be careful that you keep yourself unspotted from the world's philosophy concerning these most vulnerable. And then verse uh, 1 again, uh, Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect or favoritism of persons. For if there come into your ministry or assembly a man with a gold ring, goodly apparel, he's rich, 
And there came also in a poor man in vile raiment, shabby clothing. And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay or expensive clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place. And say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Here, take care of me. Wash my feet. Are ye not then partial in yourselves? Uh, showing favoritism, that is. And, and are you become judges with evil thoughts? These are evil thoughts. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, uh, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? The Lord had often used parables about how hard it is for the rich man to even, even gain eternal life through his uh, lack of humility, which he hath promised to them that love him. But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and Draw you before the judgment seats. Aren't they those that are involved in the political, the extortioners they, and the judges that often are skewed in their judgment? These are the ones that you ought not favor. Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which you're called? If you fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep, you've probably memorized this verse, the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. What a convicting verse that is. For he that said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not kill. He's using the extreme examples, the one considered the worst of the most grievous of all sins. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art transgressor of the law. Where does killing start? Starts with hatred in the heart. And the Lord is so clear about that, right? He says it is from the heart that precede all these things and the unthankfulness that leads to other things. Well, he says, don't, don't start this list of which are the worst or the, the best of sins. He says, no, if you commit one sin, you're guilty of the whole law. You break, you're, you're a lawbreaker. So speak and do as they that shall be judged by this law of liberty or the king's law, verse 8. For he shall have judgment. For he shall have judgment without mercy that showed no mercy, and mercy always rejoices, of course, against judgment. So, what is our response? The third indicator of true religion is to live a life free of prejudice or partiality. To live a life free of prejudice or partiality. I quote now J. Vernon McGee, that famous preacher of the past. He said, what God is telling us here is not to be spiritual, I like his down-home way, be spiritual snobs. Have you ever met a spiritual snob? Somebody who's got a high hat and a high horse? Maybe uh, it just has an affinity for one clique in the church or one group of people. And James is saying, don't be that way. When you come to church, be able to talk to everybody equally. Mingle amongst all the folks. And often, you know, when the guy drives into the parking lot in this brand new Tesla, and then here comes a shabby clothed guy on a bicycle, somehow the guy with the Tesla gets more attention. Have you noticed that when your Ford Pinto pulls up next to a Corvette that your Ford Pinto doesn't get embarrassed? You do. <laughs> the truth is, it's we that think, oh my, status, I don't got it. He does. And we often, our visitors that come to church often get a certain treatment simply by the way they look by the gold rings they have. And every church, every church has various levels of income, education, racial makeup, social status, and every one of us, did you know that every one of us got saved the same way? 
we're sinners saved by grace. We come to the foot of a rugged cross and we've got to bow ourselves and bow there and understand there's nothing that commends us to God. Not gold rings, not fancy clothes. There's nothing. We are to beat upon our chest and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the prayer God hears. And folks, when we get together in this church, we are not to appreciate or depreciate according to status or class or money or looks or age or education. We are to see that all of us in the same way uh, get saved, this common ground at the foot of the cross. And so we were reminded by J. Vernon McGee about Christ who left the glories of heaven and came down and he lived on the poorest of all streets probably there in Nazareth. He came He left the glories of heaven to the poorest of homes where in his life, think about this now, he borrowed loaves and fishes from a little boy. He stayed in a borrowed home, (laughs) many homes. He had nowhere to lay his head. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into town. He died on a borrowed cross. It wasn't his. Who did it belong to? Barabbas. In fact, he, of course, was laid to rest in a borrowed tomb, yet his name is worthy And I don't want us ever to consider our race or social class or age group as a privilege that we use as a wedge between ourselves and others. And that's the truth of this idea of favoritism or prejudice. Does that, you think, exist in a church like ours ever? Let me back it up. Do you think that would ever exist in a state like Georgia? Some of you who are a little older know stories, don't you, of how certain races were kept out of certain churches. And it's sad that that's not a history that's way back yonder. It's not too long ago this was true. And it can creep into our hearts. I had a neighbor the other day said, we're leaving. And we said, where are you go? Tennessee. He said, we're getting out of here. This place is getting too trashy. My eyebrow went up and I heard it in his voice. I heard it in what he said. There's a little bit of prejudice there, isn't there? And I think it can creep into the church. It's getting quiet in here. But it can. We think we're better than. We'd never admit it. But listen, we ought to love all equally because God loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And he was not specific. Okay, I'll take this one and not that one. Leviticus 19.15 says this, She shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty or rich. But in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. Isaiah 11.4 says, The Lord will judge the poor in righteousness. Can you think of any church leader in the first century that had a problem with this? I know it's Sunday night and you're a little bit out there. Uh, for me, but can you think of a church leader in the Bible that had a problem with prejudice? Remember the time God called Peter to the house of Cornelius and let down that sheet, right, of unclean food, and boy, did he ever recoil. No, not me, not me, Lord. I'm not going to touch that. And the Lord had to convict his heart, and he concluded with that illustration from heaven, that vision God is no respecter of persons. Peter, you got to get out of your, uh, your lofty tower and love everybody equally. The Jew, the Gentile, uh, the bond, the free. 
And you're wrong if you don't think this isn't a problem where we live. Verse 4, he says, these are, if you're partial, you become judges with evil thoughts. God will bring this into account. Verse 2, he says, the rich with nice clothes, gold jewelry, a picture, an illustration of how we often show favorites. Those that aren't so put together often don't get the attention around us. And we judge by clothing and so forth. So from the illustration here he gives us, he comes down to this point of of the law, the royal law, verse 8. You are to live not by those that you prefer or look like you or drive the same cars that you do or go to the same places you go or enjoy the same things you enjoy, but you are to live by the royal law. In Latin, the lex regia, that idea that that there is a kingly law, the king of kings, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. You are to love God with all your heart and, finish it, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. So how are you doing with that? How am I doing with that? It is the number one key to good evangelism. That's it, the royal law. You love your neighbor as yourself, and you're going to go over there and share the gospel. You're going to go over and help with the kids. You're going to go over there and help mend the fence. You're going, to do, you're going to think of them before you think of you, and you're going to think about their destiny, their eternal death. And you're going to go there and say, listen, before you die, <laughs> that'll shake them up. Before you die, I want to tell you God loves you. I've been your neighbor for six years. And I've never told you that, but I'm to love you. It's all my heart as I love myself. God takes for granted that you love yourself. So you take all the laws, comprehend them together, summarize them, love your neighbor as yourself. That is the law, the the royal law that really supersedes and comprehends them all. If you fulfill that law, you're going to live in such a way in and out of the church. It's going to make a difference to those around you. To not do so, verse 9, to not do so is uh, to be convicted Above the law, this law of liberty, this law, this royal law, as a transgressor. Have you found, it's true in my life, so I know it's true in yours, have you found that as you go around and count up sins, I guess the Catholic has the venial sin, what is, anyway, they have a list of the worst and the best, right? Have you found that you tend to categorize the sins of your neighbor as really bad and your own sins as Uh, Maybe kind of bad. Do you? That's what this is about. James is saying, listen, if you're partial, if if you're prejudiced, your sin stinks as bad as the murderer or as the adulterer. So don't go around with your nose in the air thinking, okay, I don't do that. At least I don't. Remember the man who said, at least I'm not like that man. The Lord says here through the the author of James, for he that saith, verse 11, do not commit adultery, also do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet thou kill, thou shalt be a transgressor of the law. Again, that begins with that little seed of hatred. All these sins, back to verse 10, whatever it is, you're a lawbreaker. And you know what we have to do? We have to maximize the offense of our sin to maximize mercy. And when you minimize the effect or the, the extent of your sin, you minimize God's mercy. It's a big deal to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. 
Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.